I've been away for three months. My name's Jared. It's nice to meet you. Uh, I really do have the privilege of serving as uh, the lead pastor and the executive director over our small family of churches called the Sacred Grace. Uh, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. Um, it's a joy to, to join in this shared mission that we're a part of, right? Uh, we, we prayed about taking uh, spiritual and social responsibility, right, in this place we call home. And, and we want to cultivate, you know, the spiritual and social renewal of the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in. Uh, be it that we have a small church uh, in East Colfax and, and North Aurora, or a church in Inglewood that we've had there for the last five years, or, or individuals that are just beginning to, to dream about and think about what it would look like uh, to just be a family, um, some roommates that begin to pray about and, and seek the spiritual and the social renewal of the neighborhood that they call home. Um, and we all believe that the way that we do this best is by following the way of Jesus. And so these rhythms that we are a part of about moving up towards God and towards ourselves and each other, and then out to these neighborhoods that we call home. Uh, this is the pattern. This is the rhythm of life that we live into. As we come to this text today, Exodus chapter three, I think there's different lenses that we can look at scripture with. Uh, the one that I want to look at today is through faith, uh, which might be uh, seeming like, well, that's always what we talk about uh, when we go to church. We're always talking about faith, but I would like to offer um, a term that's been helpful for me is not only like, what do we believe? What do we cognitively ascend to when we're talking about this? But what do we trust? And so, as Joe pointed out last week, when we come to a text, context is important. Joe provided a, a brilliant overview of the context of Exodus 3 last week. If you weren't here, if you haven't listened to it yet, either online on the podcast, I would encourage you to do that. But I actually want to start today um, looking at the last two verses of chapter 2, before we get into chapter 3. Because it's important as we enter this text today about God's personal presence, that we recognize his seeming absence that we find ourselves in right before we get into this text. So in the NIV, it says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Uh, one of the versions of the Bible that I read pretty frequently because of its uh, poetic nature is called the message. And this is how Eugene Peterson not only wrote it, uh, but kind of laid it out at the end of chapter two. God listened to their groanings. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw what was going on with Israel. God understood. Eugene Peterson writes this. The experienced absence or silence of God for the over 400 years preceding the Exodus is frequently overlooked by the important, uh, by important element in the salvation st story. There are stretches of time when nothing remotely like salvation seems to be happening. We need this Exodus validation that a sense of the absence of God is part of the story. And that it is neither exceptional nor preventable nor a judgment on the way that we are living our lives. Whether the experience of absence is measured in weeks, months, or years, for most of us, it doesn't fit into what is normal in our understanding of salvation. And so I think it's an important moment for us to recognize we're going to spend today talking about this very personal presence of God with someone. But the context that we find ourselves in is 400 years of seeming absence. And for me, it's an important prayer for not only myself and my family and friends who have experienced that absence of God. But I think it's an important prayer for the people and the countries who are suffering and seemingly God has been forgotten. That God looks and that God notices, that God's attentive and that God loves. 
if we're honestly going to look at a text this morning about God's presence that's personal and intimate, we also have to have Exodus 2 fresh in our memory about God's absence. And so we're going to look uh, at Exodus uh, today. Uh, I love kind of these big overarching narratives that we find in, in Genesis and Exodus. If Genesis is the story of creation about how God sets and, and then uh, puts us in the garden correctly, um, he sets the cosmos and, and creates it and invites us into enjoying it and joining him in his creative work. If Genesis is the story of creation, the Exodus is the story of salvation. It's this meta-narrative. It's this very huge arc where all the rest of our story begins to pull threads out of. It's this arc where we clearly see a need for liberation from oppression, from slavery, and from death. But salvation is not just rescue work. The tradition I grew up in seemed like salvation seemed to be just like rescue operations. But if you read the story of Exodus correctly, it is not just salvation, but it is a holistic reordering and reorienting of our life that not only has freed us from oppression, but it is reorienting our hearts and our minds and our bodies from the slavery that we've known into a new way of life. And that's the beautiful, like, big story of Exodus. It is about rescue, but it's also about the reorienting of people about how to live free lives. And so both creation and salvation are mysteries of our faith. We believe and we trust in these stories that are beyond in in unimaginable ways. And we believe that God, as he will reveal himself this morning in this text, is at the very center of these mysteries. Eugene Peterson writes that we know enough to get in on salvation, but most of what goes on in salvation is beyond us and that we live in a mystery. The saints have often called it the cloud of unknowing. And again, the tradition that I grew up in so desperately wanted to make sense of and rationalize all the pieces of what we would say that we believe or we trust or we have faith in that I think it lost, at least for me and my upbringing, part of the mystery. That salvation is a mystery that we are invited into, but we don't fully understand. It is beyond us. And the text this morning is a beautiful text that reminds us of how far beyond us God is. It's a wonderful setting that we find ourselves in this text. And the story is a salvation story. It's a mysterious story. But the story and the text is about who God is. And it's also about who we are. Often we find ourselves standing in sacred space, being invited into participating in this sacred story and the salvation story. And often we, like Moses, as we will see this morning, are uncertain and unsure, and we're concerned about confronting all the big and powerful forces that are in our lives. And we find that uh, Moses comes up with a lot of reasons why God shouldn't choose us and why we shouldn't be participating in the salvation story. And yet he invites us in. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 3 this morning, and this is the text that we're going to read from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezites, the Havites, the Jebusites, the Reubenites, the Joshites, the Joites. Just kidding. Those kingdoms have not yet been established. Um, uh, let's see, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressed. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And who am I to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, well, suppose that I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask, well, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to look at just a few parts of this salvation story. The beginning interaction between a God whose presence is personal to Moses and Moses's response to it. Uh, we find out that Moses has moved to Midian. He's married and he has a family with funny names. Um, his wife is named Zipporah. Which, you know, if you're looking to, like, uh, be at the last of the line in grade school, that's what you name your daughter, is Zipporah. Um, so his wife has a son. They name her, uh, has, has a son is named Gershom, um, which basically means I'm a foreigner living in a foreign land. And, and so uh, Moses is basically, his whole identity is about, I am not where I thought I would be. And so Moses is shepherding, which is at least uh, interesting that there's this, um, symbolic occupation in scripture that it seems to be all the people of God always find themselves taking care of animals that are not intelligent. Um, and he sees a burning bush. And I love just how very plain and simple the text says. He sees a burning bush. It doesn't burn up. And Moses says, what a strange sight. I will go see this. And out of this burning bush, we hear two words. Moses. Moses. The first words of God in hundreds of years are somebody's name. It is a God who sees and knows a person who probably thinks he's been forgotten, who finds himself on the backside of the desert in a foreign land with a foreign family naming his kids funny names. And it seems to be at least the saying of his name twice, Moses, Moses, puts him in line with some other important people in the name of scripture. It'd be kind of like my mother uh, when I was young, I would know that something was important, not when she would say Jared, but when she would say Jared Ray, then we knew something important was about to happen, right? And so this is a little bit of a, a tip off that something important is about to happen when uh, the name is used twice. So it says Moses, Moses. So other people in scripture, it's Abraham, Abraham about God's call or Samuel, Samuel about God's call or Simon, Simon to uh, Jesus to Peter or Martha, Martha, if you remember in his exchange with Martha or Saul, Saul, um, or the last one is Ananias, Ananias. All these people, God is trying to say there's something very important and personal that I'm trying to communicate to you. And so Moses is, is attended to by God personally. 
And so Moses kind of comes close and then and God says, well, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. Well, what is all this about? Well, there's a couple of things that taking off his shoes could have meant. The first is uh, in the Near Eastern world, taking off your shoes would be to recognize that you were in someone's home. Uh, some cultures still practice this. Like if you were to go into a home, you take off your shoes, which is both a, an act of hospitality on your part that you're not tracking things into their home, but it's also an act of hospitality on their part that you are now like comfortable. You are no longer traveling. You have come into their environment. The other sign is that it could have been simply that God was reminding him that you are not uh, the person who is in charge of this. So historically, servants would not have had shoes. So either symbol, there is something that God is trying to communicate to Moses about his presence and being in God's presence. And he says this, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, which I believe is what God is doing is he's reminding him of a faith that has gone before him. I think one of the probably the largest errors in our cultural moment is that we don't believe in anything that has gone before us. We feel like that somehow we are going to figure out all the mysteries of faith and God and spirituality and life and morality as if like the whole arc of human history had not existed before us. And somehow we are going to be the handful of people that are going to figure this all out. And I think part of what trust is, is being reminded of the history of God's direction and protection. And in this context, it's that of the patriarchs, the fathers of the family of faith the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. We are born into a bigger story of faith. Potentially, we were born into a bigger story of faith because of our own biological family that shared that faith with us. Or possibly, we are the first people that kind of are adopted into the story of God. But either way, we are not the first people who have been invited into this mystery of the story of salvation. And it's an important story for us to remember that we are not the first people who are a part of it and that are joining God in it. Well, I love Moses' question after God instructs him. He says, well, who am I? Uh, Moses quickly loses focus. He, he has been like, transfixed by the presence of God. And then he very quickly uh, becomes very self-referential. And we see this throughout the interchange and the conversation that Moses remains pretty self-referential rather than focused on God. And he says, well, who am I? God is present and personal to him, and yet he is focused on himself. He's incredibly reluctant. As I studied this text over the last few weeks, I recognize like how reluctant I am to. If there was any leadership liability over the last three decades of my life, it's about being a reluctant leader. It's about always being too self-referential about like, well, God, I don't think that like I have the right personality or experience or Enneagram type or whatever that may be to be leading out in this way. I, as a mentor of mine said, often borrow tomorrow's worry. Uh, and I believe that that worry is that enemy of trust. It's that enemy of faith that we become more self-referential than recognizing God's presence and invitation to join him in the salvation story. So God continues to be patient and present with Moses. Moses says, okay, well, what if I go, hypothetically? What if they ask, what will I say? And this is the center, I think, of the mystery of the salvation story. I am who I am. 
the name that's given to Moses reveals God as a mystery that's beyond us. Now, we could teach a very long workshop on this I am who I am. But for me, this has become maybe the center of the mystery. There's these four letters, Y-H-W-H. Because if you've ever read those brain vendors that says native readers don't need vowels, and there's no vowels in the sentence, and we can all read it, this is somewhat like what we end up with with Y-H-W-H. It's been studied over thousands of years by endless scholars and saints, all with the effort to basically end up with God's name is a mystery. I am who I am is a verbal noun. It's an icon that tells us that God is actively present. And our really only option to this name of God is either to be present to the presence or not present. It's this definitive relation of God who is always present. One scholar wrote this, I am is the eternal unchanging. There is no past or future in divine vocabulary. And so in the same way that God has said, I am the God of your father, right? He's talking about fast, past. And, and he also is references himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the God of the future. Ultimately, the, the thing that is most God about God is the eternal present. It's this verbing noun without any vowels. And, and the best explanation I was given ever about this name, Y-H-W-H, was from a rabbi. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. And as I was traveling around Israel with uh, this Messianic rabbi, a rabbi who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, we had all sorts of fascinating conversation. And one of them was about the name of God. And he simply said, Jared, how do you pronounce that? And I was like, well, I think I'm going to get this wrong because I feel like every question from a rabbi is a setup. But I'm going to go ahead. And I was like, Yahweh. And he's like, you're trying too hard. It's like, okay, should I try again? He's like, no, you've already said it. It's like, okay, this is like one of those, like, you know, rabbi round circles where you're just making fun of me and I don't know it yet. He goes, Jared, the word is, it's like, excuse me? It's like the name of God. The name of God is breath. Breathe in, breathe out. We are all, in fact, saying the name of God, said Rabbi Ben. And he went on to say every human, aware or unaware, willing to admit or unadmit, unadmit. Their final word is their final breath. And the final word and the final breath, they are saying the name of God. So Moses says, well, who do I say sent? God says, God is inviting Moses to be present to the eternal presence of God that is personal right there with him. And it's in this moment that I would like to invite us that we in this moment are breathing and saying the name of God. And in our own breath, there is the recognition of the presence of God. That we too are on holy ground. 
Joe was hoping that I was going to make the bushes up here spontaneously combust to prove that this morning. But pyrotechnics kind of went out of my arsenal a little while ago. But this is sacred space. We are in God's house. We were not required to take off our shoes before we walked in, but we are in the house of God. The hospitality of God is present to us. Our names have been spoken. The spirit is here. And we are invited into the salvation story. And we, like Moses, have reservations. And we're all reluctant. But I am is with us. And God is revealing himself in this narrative as I am. John, the writer of the gospel of John, weaves this I am into his New Testament narrative about Jesus. Seven times in the gospel of John, the term I am is used by Jesus, threading back to this first personal revelation of God to Moses. Jesus says in the gospel of John, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it is this I am that Jesus says in John chapter 18 that echoes most of the divine presence. Jesus in the garden, it says, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and they asked him, well, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am, Jesus said. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Like Moses centuries before falling to the ground, when we are like confronted with the personal presence of the divine being, an appropriate response is like falling to the ground. And so there's this I am that is at the center of the mystery of the salvation story. And we are introduced to it here in this text in Exodus. And it is this I am that we choose to believe and we choose to trust as a family of churches. We choose to believe that God is inviting us into the salvation story, that he is inviting us to be not only free from slavery, but to realign our lives to freedom. And this is the point in which we enter into this salvation story. And pretty much from this point on, the salvation story continues, and Moses is a part of joining God in the salvation story, and the spectacular begins to be regular. The burning bush is just the start. The exchange with Moses here on the mountain, Moses is like, okay, the name was great, but can I have some signs? And so he gets not only the sign of a burning bush, but yet God tells him to throw his uh, staff down and it becomes a snake. Um, of which, by the way, if you do a very small amount of Google research, holding a snake by its tail is not the correct way. So God informs Moses incorrectly how to pick up the snake. But uh, if you have studied Egyptian kind of symbolism, the snake is, is the symbol of Egypt. And so it's about uh, it is no longer this thing that you have felt controlled by. But I am that which you have felt controlled by. I am in control of. And he gives him this other sign of putting his hand in his cloak and coming back out. And it's like leprosy or it's like death white which is to remind Moses that not only am I like God over all creation, but I'm also the God over life and death. In this country that has been uh, oppressive and all about death, God is like, well, put your hand back in and bring me back out and there's life. And there's these spectacular events and these seemingly impossible scenarios in the rest of uh, Exodus. And I think too often we get caught up in those and we forget that where it starts is about being present to the presence of God. 
And as Joe pointed out last week, we could sort out the validity and the historicity, and we could miss the mystery. We can miss the meaning of the story, that at the center and the foundation of the story is an invitation to participate in salvation. And Exodus is the story of salvation. And it's a story that we get to enter into every day. It's an invitation to the story that when we started the Sacred Grace East Colfax, that we get to join God in this salvation story, not only freeing people from the slavery and the oppression and the darkness that they have experienced, but also and about reorienting people's lives to live towards free people. So this faith, this trust that we hold as a family value, we, we want to hold it with um, open hands. We want to invite curiosity and questions. We're not trying to be dogmatic about that, that you can't come to these texts with a lot of questions. But every week that we come together, we also come together in songs and prayers and scriptures to be reminded and to be formed by. These are the things that we trust and believe. We believe in a God who is present to us in this moment. It is this I am, this God, that is divinely present and personal to us today. Which feels like an appropriate transition to the table of communion. And so as Joe comes and begins to lead us through communion, I would like to offer maybe a practice that you could take with you from today and into your week. Uh, breath prayer is a, a simple practice where you sit and you're attentive to your breath. And I would invite you, if you've never done it, take two minutes, 120 seconds, and be attentive to your breath. But in that, as you recognize your breath coming in and out, Recognize that you are saying the name of God. That God is present and personal to you in the same way that he was present and personal to Moses. So let's come to the table.